Hello and welcome to our digital discussion with James Rickards on the new Great Depression. Uh, Jim Rickards is a good friend of mine and uh, he uh, has been already a guest of my digital talk. But uh, this time uh, we are going to present his new book. Um, and before we are doing this, I would like to introduce uh, Jim very, very shortly. So he is the editor of uh, the Strategic Intelligence, which is a financial newsletter. And he's also director of the James Rickards Project, an inquiry into the complex dynamics of geopolitics and global capital. He's also the author of Wall Street Journal and national bestseller Aftermath, which we also presented in Vienna. This is my copy, by the way. And uh, the three New York Times bestsellers, The Road to Ruin, The Debt of Money, and Currency, Currency Wars, uh, but also the national bestseller, The New Case for Gold, all from the Penguin Random House, which is also the publishing the new book. Uh, he is an investment advisor, lawyer, and economist, and has held senior positions at city banks and other organizations and institutions. Um, among the many activities, uh, he has been also a contributor to uh, various uh, prominent uh, media outlets, such as the Financial Times, the Telegraph, the New York Times, Washington Post, and so on and so forth. Now, the reason why we are here today is because we want to discuss uh, his uh, latest book, which is The New Great Depression, Winners and Losers in the Post-Pandemic uh, Time. Uh, this book, which I have had the pleasure to read, uh, is uh, particularly interesting because we are still actually uh, within the pandemic uh, and uh, it is uh, still not clear how long actually it will last and what uh, what will be the uh, repercussions uh, for the economic and uh, the social systems not only in the west but also in the developing world now jim i would like to start with um, actually with the first uh, not the first but the second chapter of your book because the first chapter deals uh, in fact with uh, the chronology of the events uh, from uh, from 2020 when the virus outbreak uh, began uh, so i would like to move to the second chapter which is actually focused on your assessment about the cost of uh, the, the 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 lockdowns but also um so to say the cost of uh, the pandemic for our economic systems here in the west uh, particularly you are of course focusing on america but i would also appreciate if you have uh some uh some some words for uh you know your, your estimation basically for uh the european recovery so the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Belinda. Thanks for, for the introduction. And uh, thank you for, for mentioning the book, The New Great Depression. By the way, I know uh, we have a global audience. Uh, we're live streaming and uh, you have a global following. But um, I also know your, um, your, your center, your think tank is in uh, Vienna. And just would mention for, uh, for readers there that the book is available in German. Uh, the German language edition came out. Actually, the German language edition came out before a day before the English language edition. Often it takes 
six months or a, a year to do these translations. The other books have been in um, no, 14 or 16 uh, different languages, but um, the uh, a lot of the foreign rights publishers, foreign language publishers, got uh, the manuscript early and did the translations right away. So our publisher in German is uh, FBB, uh, Finanzbuch Verlag. Uh, my German is not very good, but that's how I, I understand it. But it's it's, it's also a bestseller um, in the German language edition for the for the audience there. But uh, yeah, to get back to your question, it um, it recalls a conversation I had with my editor when this whole book came up. We first. Uh, they first talked about it in last April. I got a call from my agent. They said we we absolutely need a book on the economic consequences of uh, of, of the pandemic, and we'd like you to write it. And we worked that out and and uh, went went forward on a very fast track. Sometimes a book can take, as you know, a year or two years or more to write. But we said this has to be done in a matter of months. You know, get it out to the audience. We were able to uh, to do that. But my my editor said, you know, Jim, we. Um, we love your work on economics and capital markets and you know growth, inflation, all that, but keep away from the the medicine, uh, the medical side of it because you're not a doctor. And I said, I said, no, that's impossible. That's that's like asking someone to write a book about property damage in New Orleans in 2005 and not mention Hurricane Katrina. You have to get to the cause in order to understand the consequences. So they agreed, um, and I was very wary of the fact that. Uh, uh, I'm not a doctor. I mean, I want, I'm not really intimidated by natural science. I think it is accessible. And I read over 100, uh, you know, peer-reviewed papers from major journals, you know, The Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine and others to uh, to get up to speed. But it's uh, it, you, you can you can definitely follow it. I don't I don't have to look under an electron microscope to understand what's going on. But uh, but the way we constructed the book, and you're exactly right. So chapter one was about the virus, the outbreak, the source of it, how it spread, how it was handled, etc. Chapter three jumps into the economics. That's the new Great Depression. Chapter four is about policy responses and so on. But chapter two that you mentioned is the bridge. That's the one that goes from the medicine to the economics. And it's about the lockdown. Uh, and just to kind of summarize, there's a lot of evidence to support this. Lockdowns don't work. They do not work to stop the spread of the virus. They are very good at destroying economies. And that's what we've done. By pursuing lockdown policies, we've destroyed uh, certain uh, national economies and severely damaged the global economy without any benefit in terms of uh, the spread of the virus. Now, that sounds controversial, but actually the, the evidence is there to support it. When I, wrote that last spring, and I did update the book as late as October. So the book is, you know, came out in January. It's very, uh, very fresh, um, very up-to-date in that sense. But I, was, I started doing a lot of this work uh, last May and June. And the evidence was pretty clear then that lockdowns don't work. But since then, uh, as late as, um, well, even today, I mean, just new reports coming out on a daily basis, the evidence is overwhelming that lockdowns don't work. There's a story out today that the, uh, uh, the this extreme lockdowns in the UK have stopped the virus in Sweden. That sounds funny, but the, but the, the author's point is that lockdowns have nothing to do with the spread of the virus. So let me give some concrete examples to to back that point up. So in the United States, there are 50 states, of course, and we never had a national lockdown in the United States. It went state by state. It was up to each governor or each mayor to um, uh, set up a, lo a lockdown policy, and they did. And some of them were extreme. So New York and California 
had extreme lockdowns. Uh, uh, some states like Florida had a moderate lockdown. Uh, and then there were states like South Dakota that had no lockdown. They, they never did. The governor made it completely voluntary. She said, you know, let's have education, wash your hands, social distance and all that. But I'm going to leave it to individuals and entrepreneurs to decide if you want to go to a restaurant or not, or you want to close your restaurant or not. So there was never a lockdown in South Dakota. The same thing around the world. Uh, Spain, Italy, Germany, and other countries had extreme forms of lockdown. Sweden had a moderate lockdown. Uh, and Brazil, at least at the initial stages, had no lockdown at all. So we have those results from 30 countries around the world and 50 states in the United States. And what they show, and this is uh, a, a very, very good empirical studies, what they show is there is no correlation between the kind of lockdown policy you pursued and the spread of the virus. Or put differently, there's no evidence that a lockdown has any material effect on the spread of the virus. None. Um, and I did an interview uh, the other day with an Australian audience, well, South Asian, Australia, New Zealand. And one of the questions that came in is, uh, you know, it was from someone in New Zealand. They said, we had an extreme lockdown and the spread of the virus has diminished greatly. Uh, don't you think there's a lesson there for the United States? And I said, no. I said, I know you had an extreme lockdown and I know that virus has diminished, but I could point to many examples where they did not have an extreme lockdown and the virus has greatly diminished also, which means there's no correlation, which means that lockdowns don't work. So that evidence is, is overwhelming. So, but it begs the question, why do politicians keep continue to impose lockdowns? Well, the answer is it's political. Politicians can't be seen to do nothing. Sometimes doing nothing, by the way, is the right policy. Not always, but, but sometimes that's, that's something uh, you should think about. But politicians have to do something. They don't know the science. They don't understand what we're discussing now. They throw on these lockdowns. Uh, you know, and sure enough, the virus does diminish. And they say, see, it's a success. And, and the answer is no. You would have got the same result anyway. And meanwhile, you've destroyed your economy, small businesses, entrepreneurs, et cetera, jobs, growth. And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll come back to that. Um, so the, the best predictor of the spread of the virus, actually, was from an Israeli uh, mathematician, uh, an applied mathematician, statistical scientist, who published a paper and that it was available last spring. It's in, it's in my book. By the way, Valina, the, in the book, um, I hope everyone reads the book and, and gets a lot out of it, but if you just had the notes, that by itself is extremely valuable because I put all those sources, there, there are 200 endnotes in the book, and if for anything I say, if you want to go to a primary source, look at the study, that's, that's available. Uh, but what this um, Israeli mathematician showed, he said, he was very candid, he said, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a virologist, but I have all the data. And he showed that when there's an outbreak, and it can be geographically separate in time, it can be chronologically separate, uh, it can be a different variant, so, there, so you have to kind of define outbreaks, but they do pop up here and there, new ones were coming along all the time. And he showed that it runs its course in about eight to 10 weeks. If, if you see an outbreak and a, and a steep increase in caseload and a steep increase in fatalities, you can be pretty confident that that's going to get worse for about four or five weeks and then it's going to tail off and then it's going to be over in about eight to 10 weeks. Doesn't mean there won't be another outbreak somewhere. Doesn't mean that there can't be a mutation. You've got to be very alert to that. But what it does mean is that you can actually predict these things. And if you look at the United States, and this is true globally, by the way, I should make that clear. But if you look at the United States, our, our first wave 
was kind of March and April of 2020. It was, it was circulating in February, but it really took off very steeply in March and April, peaked, and then came down by around June. And that's when everyone said, oh, we can reopen the economy and get back to normal, pent up demand and all that stuff, which, which I said at the time was nonsense, but it, it turned out to be correct. Um, but then there was a second wave that started in August, September, uh, peaked around uh, late September and then tailed off by October, greater than the first wave. Then it, it, the new cases became very low. The, the caseload uh, increase became very low. And then there was a third wave, which started in around mid-November uh, and then peaked in January and now has tailed off very steeply. But if you look at that third wave um, at the peak, which was around January 8th, the caseload was nine times greater than what was happening in March and April. We all remember March and April 2020. We were all, you know, staying home, quarantined and locked down. No one was going out. The economy was, you know, falling uh, uh, precipitously. Uh, but the, the caseload increase in uh, late December, early January was nine times greater. The fatalities were double. Uh, by the way, the difference in factors between caseload and fatalities had to do with treatments. Uh, the treatments are better now than they were then, but the, but the virus goes where it wants to go. Um, and now that it's tailed off, which is good news. Um, but all three of those waves ran eight to 10 weeks. So it, it seems to me that this Israeli uh, mathematician got it right. Certainly the evidence bears him out. Uh, and if you see another outbreak, don't, don't panic. Don't, um, you know, shut down your economy. But you should suppose that it's going to last eight to 10 weeks because that's been a pretty consistent pattern around the world. However, when do lockdowns get imposed? Well, when the, when the caseload is at its peak um, in the curve, so after about four weeks, the politicians panic, they lock everything down. And then sure enough, the virus starts to diminish after that. But the point is, it has nothing to do with the lockdowns themselves. So that's my bridge over to the, the new Great Depression. And, and again, you say something like that, uh, it's not very, um, I'll say politically correct. It's not very popular, but, but the evidence is there. There are numerous studies in the 50 United States, in 30 countries around the world, beginning last spring, continuing until new, again, new studies are coming out all the time that, that show that lockdowns don't work. Um, but they do destroy economies. Now here, there's another important aspect. So people say, well, wait a second, Jim, the stock market, U.S. stock markets are at an all time high and they are. You know, they crashed about a little over 30% between late February and late March. Then they came back and then they reached new highs in September. And now they're at new, new all-time highs. So they say, see, the economy's great. Everything's back to normal. And I say, no, the, the stock market has never been more detached from the real economy. Here's the stock market up here. Here's the real economy down here. Why is that? Well, the main index, people talk about in the United States, we talk about the Dow Jones index, but in fact, uh, Institutional investors, professional money managers, analysts, look at the S&P 500, the, the S&P 500 stock index. Um, and that is at or near all-time highs. But what many people don't understand is that that is a what's called a cap-weighted index, meaning as a company, your influence on the index is based on your market capitalization. And the bigger your market capitalization, the bigger impact you have on the index. And in fact, the S&P 500 should really be called the S&P 7 because there are seven companies and we know who they are. It's, um, it's Apple, Amazon, uh, Facebook, Google, Netflix, Microsoft. I think I to say, right? right. <laughs> those, those seven companies are 40% 
of the market capitalization of the entire S&P 500. So what that means is that whatever those companies do, that's what the index does. Well, the companies I just mentioned, those seven companies are the least affected by the pandemic. Nobody shut down Amazon. Nobody shut down Apple. There are digital companies, electronic companies, technology companies, streaming companies. In other words, they're companies that don't have any significant amount of bricks and mortar presence or, or you know, et cetera. Um, and, and now we're in a, a feedback loop, a recursive function where, so the index goes up. So what do Americans invest in? Uh, and people around the world, actually. Well, they don't buy individual stocks anymore. They buy an index fund. So they put money in the index fund. The manager buys the index, which means buying the seven companies I mentioned. It goes up. More money comes in, it goes up more. More money comes in, it goes up more. So we have a very strong bubble dynamic. So two things are going on. The S&P 500 is the S&P 7. Those seven companies are almost unaffected by the pandemic. In fact, some of them have benefited enormously, starting with Amazon. Uh, and then people, people keep putting money into them because we have this recursive function going on. So it really looks like a bubble. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't short the, the index uh, right now. I mean, it'd be like stand, standing in a highway in front of an 18-wheeler truck going, you know, 100 kilometers per hour and saying, stop, stop, there's a cliff ahead. You're just going to get run over, you know. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. But I think it is important for investors to, to understand that dynamic. Uh, meanwhile, what's going on in the real economy? Well, using the United States as an example, so last spring, you know, they shut down basically small business, you know, restaurants, bars, salons, dry cleaners, shopping boutiques, you know, et cetera, all these small businesses. And two things happen. One, they say, well, it'll, you know, it'll come back in the, in the summer, you know, the summer 2020, which it didn't, but that was the thought at the time. Uh, and we'll have what they call pent up demand. When I heard the phrase pent up demand, I thought, well, it sounds like green shoots in 2009. Remember green shoots, you know, never, never happened. We had a 10 year recovery with the weakest growth, of any recovery in U.S. history, 2.2% average annual growth for 10 years. Um, so uh, we never quite got out of that one in terms of return to uh, um, the potential growth curve or the, or the normal growth curve. You could call that a depression. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, just to give an example of pent-up demand as they described it. So during the quarantine of, um, you know, March and April 2020, uh, let's say I didn't go out to dinner for nine weeks because I did. I usually go out to dinner on a Friday night with my wife or whatever. So we didn't. Uh, but by the summer, July, you know, some restaurants started to reopen. So we went out to dinner. But when I went out, I didn't order nine dinners. I ordered one like I usually do. In other words, there was no pent up demand for the nine dinners I skipped. That was a permanent loss. And many of those jobs are permanently lost. And a lot of those, I said, restaurants reopened. Some of them reopened. Most of them didn't. They, they shut down permanently. They walked away from their leases, put up their equipment, the fire sale prices, terminate employees are permanently unemployed. They were not hired back uh, and walk up and down the streets of any small town or major city for that matter in the United States. I'm sure it's true around the world. You'll see every third or fourth shop is, is empty, you know, uh, with a, you know, for lease sale, uh, uh, for lease sign in the window. Um, so those are permanent losses. So, but some people say, well, who cares? You know, it's a restaurant. They only have 20 employees, you know, wage staff and bartenders and so forth. Well, first of all, I care and the unemployed people care and the owners care. But when people look down their nose at small business, what they don't understand is that, yeah, the individual businesses may be small, but in the aggregate, small and medium sized enterprises are 50% 5 of all jobs in the U.S. economy and 45% of GDP. 
And the same is true elsewhere around the world. In any developed economy, service economy, that ratio is about the same. It doesn't matter if it's Spain or Italy or Austria. Those, those, those percentages are about the same. So when you shut down half your economy, even if you say, you know, 50% capacity, I mean, New York's a joke. They said uh, restaurants could open at 25% capacity. Well, anyone who came up with that order, it was Governor Cuomo, doesn't understand the restaurant business. They work on 10% margins. So how are you supposed to make money if you have a 10% margin and you're at 25% capacity? You can't even cover your fixed costs. So you're going to go out of business and they are going out of business. These, these businesses, they don't have $5 million of working capital. They have, they, they make money, they pay their bills, they pay their employees and they make a small profit, but they don't have the kind of money you need to shut your doors and, and remain in business. So they just go out of business and, and half of them have. So, uh, so here's the stock market for the reasons I mentioned. It's way up here, and then here's the here's the real um, re here's the stock market. Here's the real economy. There's this gap between the perception and the reality. Reality always wins. In the long run, reality will win. That gap will shut, and the stock market will come back down. But it won't necessarily happen right away. So the short answer is, lockdowns do not work to stop the spread of the virus. They do work to destroy economies. We're doing a very good job of creating permanent job losses. Uh, permanent terminations of businesses, and we'll struggle to get back to any kind of normal growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're connect. Uh, I'm not hearing you right now. Uh, oh, okay, okay, perfect. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, now, good. now this was really important uh, clarification uh, when it comes to the lockdowns because we are still very much in the. Uh, I suppose that 2021 won't be much different than 2020 when it comes to further lockdowns. And of course, if we look at China, uh, it will tell another story because they have uh, the very successful, according to the media coverage, uh, story of the Wuhan lockdown of 69 days altogether, right. Right. Uh, which we then saw in a documentary. Um, showing us uh, all the tourists, a uh, million of tourists uh, flooding the city to, you know, to see where it, the whole thing started. And uh, I think they had 15 million tourists just over a week in October, you know, but basically, of course, it also was a, a part of a propaganda showing that uh, China has successfully tackled the pandemic. Uh, but, but, but still what is important uh, I think for the discussion uh, is um, to move to the more important question. And that is the question about what comes next. And right. as you point out, uh, even in your title, there will be losers and winners in the post-pandemic world. Now, I would like to focus on uh, my next question on the chapter considering the uh, new depression so that you can also explain for our uh, listeners and watchers, uh, so viewers, uh, what exactly do you mean by new depression? Uh, I also would like to stress that we uh, had already a similar conversation last year before the lockdowns began, uh, before the virus outbreak was really, really 
um, has been unleashed, so to say, in Europe and America. And we were discussing the recession cycle, we were discussing the global trade slowdown, and also the case of uh, global power competition between the United States and China under Trump's administration. Meanwhile, we have a new US president and the uh, same Chinese president. And I think that uh, these issues are still very much on the table. But uh, uh, on the other side, we are going probably to uh, witness uh, a new kind of policy coming out from Washington when it comes to dealing with Beijing. So how does all of this come together? Um, who is going to be uh, the winner and who is going to be the loser or you know, are going to be the loser uh, losers of um, you know in the post-pandemic world uh, and how is it connected to the question about the global economic recovery if there is such sure well well that that's a that's a fantastic question it's a lot to unpack because there's a lot of parts here but let me uh let me sort of take that one by one first first thing just a footnote on your on your last comment uh I know what the story coming out of China is, but the Chinese lie about everything. Uh, so I put almost no weight on what they say happened. Um, for example, in, and I've been to Wuhan, uh, not, not recently, but I've been there uh, some years ago. I was all over the city. I kind of have a sense of it. It's, it's a huge city, um, a little bit of a tech center for China, um, you know, along the, uh, along the Yangtze River. Um, they were scooping up dead bodies on the streets. Uh, they were putting people in crematoria who were still alive. Uh, they were uh, barricading people inside their homes that literally couldn't get out. They were, they were prisoners, so they were putting like, steel beams in front of doors, and they lied about the statistics. So uh, I would say, yes, China has contained the virus as of now, but the um, losses, the infections, the deaths were far greater than they've admitted. The tactics were far more um, inhumane than they've admitted. Uh, and I don't think they have any um, uh, you know, success that they can share with the world unless you think uh, you know, putting people in a crematorium when they're still alive is a good idea. That's, that's kind of the Chinese method for doing it, not to mention the lack of privacy, the surveillance state, um, and, um, you know, do, doing a lot of things that would just be considered um, inhumane, um, even crimes against humanity in any other country in the world. So I don't, I don't give China any, they, they have contained the virus, that's, that's a fact, but I don't give them any credit for the methodology or the accuracy or any information coming out of China. Not to mention the fact that the um, uh, evidence is very good, and I talked about this in my book, that the virus did leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It did come from a laboratory. This whole wet market theory is nonsense. Uh, it's part of a cover-up that's been conducted with the World Health Organization. Um, the one U.S. delegate to the World Health Organization that went in there recently to do a so-called so independent investigation is completely financed by Chinese research grants. He's about as independent as, uh, uh, you know, uh, Xi Jinping. So uh, I don't, uh, again, I, I, I don't put any weight on that. Don't give it any credibility. Oh, okay. So let's, uh, let's flip over to policy responses, which are in two main forms all over the world, uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy. And in the United States, I mean, the numbers are uh, publicly available. The, the Federal Reserve or Central Bank 
Uh, if you use M1 money supply, I always find it curious that there are four definitions of money. It makes you wonder what money is, but they have M0, M1, M2, M3, etc. Uh, but using M1, which is a popular, kind of widely accepted, you know, common sense view of money, uh, they have printed three trillion dollars in the past year. So M1 money supply went from approximately uh, 3.9 trillion to 6.9 trillion in the past year. I have to get used to saying trillion. I used to say billions, but now we have to use the, the keyword. So they printed $3 trillion of new money. Uh, on the fiscal side, uh, it's important to bear in mind that the United States was projecting one, $1 trillion deficits before the pandemic for fiscal 2020 and fiscal 2021. They were saying we're going to have a trillion dollar deficit before any stimulus, so-called stimulus or before any before the pandemic. So that's your kind of your baseline. Then in the spring of 2020, um, Congress enacted two trillion dollars of so-called COVID relief. Uh, then in December 2020, right at the very end of the Trump administration, they passed almost another one trillion dollars of spending, deficit spending. Uh, it, was, it was about 950 billion to be precise, but you know, call it a trillion dollars. Right now, the Biden administration is just a few weeks away from passing another $2 trillion deficit spending bill. That, that will probably become law. It's on a fast track and the Democrats control Congress, so that'll become law by um, probably the end of March. But they've already announced, and I'll give the Biden administration credit for transparency, they tell you what they're gonna do. They've already announced an additional $4 trillion deficit spending bill for later this year, probably by September or so. So just add that up. So that's $6 trillion under Biden, um, $3 trillion under Trump, that's $9 trillion, plus $2 trillion of baseline deficits. That's $11 trillion of deficit spending in two fiscal years under both administrations combined, Trump and Biden. The U.S. national debt before the pandemic was about $23 trillion. So we've increased the debt by almost 50%. It took 230 years to get to $23 trillion, and it took two years to get to $34 trillion, with an $11 trillion of deficit spending piled on top of that. Now, they keep calling it stimulus. You know, $3 trillion in money printing is stimulus, and you know, $11 trillion of deficit spending is stimulus. It's not stimulus. It's not stimulating. It is uh, printing. It is printing money. Yes, and it is deficit spending. Yes, they're very good at both of those things, but none of this is self-sustaining. And let me give you again a concrete example. At the end of December, uh, everybody in America—not everybody, but most people—got six hundred dollar checks. This was the uh, this is from the, the Trump bill, the nine hundred fifty billion that they did at the end of December. So everybody got a six hundred dollar check. Um, and most of them got them kind of late December, early January. Well, we just got retail sales for um, January, uh, and they were up significantly. Well, what a surprise. You give everybody a $600 check, they go out and spend it on stuff, and retail sales went up on a month-over-month -month basis. That's not surprising, but the question is, is it sustainable? Have you created sustainable growth? Have you done something that will that will feed on itself in a positive way, or did you just hand out money and people spend it? Uh, it's clearly the latter, and it begs the question, okay, everyone got their 600 bucks, a lot of people spent it. What are you going to do next month and the month after? Are you going to keep running 
doing multi-trillion dollar spending bills? Are you going to keep handing out checks to kind of prop up the economy? Well, so far, the answer appears to be yes, they are. Because, um, you know, Trump wanted uh, $2,000 checks. He got 600 But the Biden administration is going to have the other 1400 You're going to get your $1,400 check probably in late March or early April. I don't doubt that, you know, some portion of that will be spent. It'll give the economy a little boost. But my question is, um, is this sustainable? Have you uh, have you created sustaining growth? Does it feedback on itself? Have you saved all those small businesses that are shut down? Have you uh, created jobs for all the people who are you know permanently laid off? Have you reduced? Or, sorry, have you increased the labor force participation? It, it hasn't done any of those things so far. Going back to last spring, it, it's just a as I say, a temporary boost, and you're spending money and you're creating a bigger deficit. Now here are the problems. And again, let me be specific. The research is very good. Uh, this is, this comes from Carmen Reinhardt, who's now the chief economist at the World Bank, and Kenneth Rogoff, who's a professor at Harvard, but others as well, not just in the Reinhardt-Rogoff book, uh, but in a series of papers published by the National Bureau of Economic Research. It shows that when debt-to-GDP ratios go above 90%, the Keynesian multiplier drops below 1%. Uh, now, what does that mean, just kind of in, in plain plain language? Well, if your debt to GDP, so just take the national debt, divide it by GDP, and that's your debt to GDP ratio. If that ratio is at 30%, let's say, uh, which last time the United States was there was 1980, um, that's very sustainable. You you can borrow more, you can get some benefit from it, you're, you're in good shape in a fiscal sense. Um, when the debt to GDP ratio gets to 60%, you're in a little bit of a danger zone. Uh, and this is what Angela Merkel has always you know, banged the table about. And this is in the Maastricht Treaty for members of the European Monetary Zone. They, they have to stay below 60%. Uh, but what Reinhardt and Rogoff show is that at 90%, you go through the looking glass. And you now, uh, so below 90%, if you borrow a dollar and spend a dollar, you'll get more than a dollar of GDP. You might get a dollar twenty or a dollar fifteen. There are diminishing marginal returns. You might get to a dollar five, but you borrow a dollar, you spend a dollar, you get more than a dollar of GDP. When you go past ninety percent, you get less than a dollar of GDP. You borrow a dollar and spend a dollar, and you get maybe ninety cents of GDP or eighty cents of GDP. In other words, it's not only diminishing marginal returns, which is typical of any complex system, but you're not even getting your dollar back. So now what's happening? So you have, here's the debt, here's the GDP. So it's a fraction. Now you borrow a dollar, spend a dollar. The debt goes up by a dollar, but GDP only goes up 90 cents. What's happening to the ratio? It's getting bigger. It's going from 90% to 100%. So where's the United States? Well, when Trump took office in 2016, 2017, uh, that ratio is 106%. Today, it's over 130%. So who's, who, who else is in that club? Who's in the 130% club? Well, in the, in the entire world. Sorry? Japan, right? Japan? Uh, Japan, yeah, yes. Japan is in a, in a world of its own. Uh, I think they're kind of free riding on the U.S. But the, other, the only other countries uh, at that ratio are Greece, Lebanon, and, um, uh, sorry, one other, uh, oh, Italy, right? Greece, Lebanon, Italy. So there's your lunch table. That's your that's your club, the Super Debtors Club. And yes, Japan is uh, kind of in a world of its own. Um, but Japan's now entering their fourth decade of depression. You know, the Nikkei index 
hit 40,000 on December 31st, 1989. Today, it's somewhere in the high 20s. They've gone um, 30 years, over 30 years, and they've never recovered that index level. Uh, and they've had growth of barely barely 1% for uh, average annual growth of barely 1% for 30 years. So the point is that you, you could argue, I would argue that Japan's been in a 30 year depression. The United States is entering its second lost decade in 2010, 2000, 2010 to 2020 was the lost decade. We're now entering a second lost decade. And that gets to the meaning of depression um, in the economic sense. So economists like to talk about recession. And recession is because very, Japan also doesn't uh, doesn't uh, describe it as a depression, but recession. If you go there and if you listen to their economists, they always they always describe it as a recession. And here in uh, on this side of the Atlantic, uh, the the talk uh, prior to the COVID nineteen was also about recession, but not about uh, depression. So, what is your case for a new depression? So, right. how are you explaining this? Right. So uh, to recession, you're right. They, they'll talk about recession, but they've been what I call the D word. They don't want to talk about depressions <clears throat> because the reason is recession is numerically defined. It's two or more consecutive quarters of declining GDP. There are a few other, you know, bells and whistles around it, but when you have two quarters in a row of declining GDP, that's a recession. Clearly the United States was in a severe recession in the first half of 2020, but we had very strong growth in the third quarter. It wasn't enough to dig us out of the hole, but you, would say, you could say uh, this has not been officially declared, but I would say the recession was probably over by July of 2020. Um, but a depression is different. It's not quantitative. It's not strictly quantitative. A lot of people assume that, well, if a depression is two quarters of declining GDP and a depression is worse, that must mean, you know, 10 quarters of declining GDP, you know, something horrible. It does not mean that. Uh, you can have growth in a depression. What depression means is that the growth is below trend. It's below potential. In other words, it's depressed growth. So if your growth potential is three, three and a half percent, which it is or should be in most developed economies, and your actual growth is, you know, one to two percent, that gap between potential and actual is lost wealth. That's depressed growth. And that's the meaning of a depression. But depression also has um, psychological aspects. It has uh, implications for investment, for interest rates, et cetera. We have depressions, and I make the case that we're in a depression now, but economists won't talk about it because they, they want something numeric that they can plug into an equation. Uh, but, uh, but we are in a depression. And the, the effects of this will be intergenerational. And that's something that's not widely understood. Uh, there was one study, and I, I talk about it in my book. It was produced by um, an economist for the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and two academic colleagues, uh, I believe, from the University of California. And they looked at a 650-year time series. That, that's my kind of time series. I often criticize analysts for doing correlations and regressions on a you know two-year time series and go, no, that's that's junk because you haven't, going back far enough to really see cycles and business cycles and a lot of other uh, events. But 650 years, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. But they went back to the Black Death of thir uh, around 1350. And they looked at every pandemic since the Black Death in which 100,000 or more people died. And they found 15 such pandemics. 
Of course, the two worst were uh, the Black Death, where about 700, uh, sorry, 75 million people died is the best estimate. And the Spanish flu of 1918, 1919, in which about 100 million people died, according to the best estimates. Uh, by the way, COVID-19 is going to be third on the list. Um, we're, we're at almost 2.5 million fatalities. Uh, the third on the list uh, until very recently uh, was the Asian flu of 1958 with about 2 million dead. And then there was a Russian outbreak in the 1890s, also with about 2 million dead. COVID-19 is up 2.5 million dead approximately. So it's going to be third on the list. <clears throat> Pardon me. Well, what they discovered in looking at these pandemics, and these were economists, not virologists, but they had the data. And they discovered that the recovery time, and, and I de let me define recovery. It's not economic growth per se. It's when do things sort of get back to normal? <clears throat> Pardon me. The, the right answer is they never get back to normal. I mean, we will survive. We'll get through it. You know, we'll return to our routines, but it will never be the way it was before the pandemic. We will never get back to the world of 2019. We'll be living in a new world, and that's what the evidence shows. But what, what these economists showed is that in terms of interest rates, employment levels, growth levels, and other important metrics, you don't, <clears throat> pardon me, you don't get back to anything like normal for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Not 30 weeks, not 30 months, but 30 years. Uh, and just to give two examples to kind of support what this much more in-depth study shows. Uh, in 1929, the U.S. stock market crashed, and that was the beginning of the Great Depression. And uh, it bottomed, <clears throat> pardon me, it took three years to bottom. It bottomed in June 1932, down 89.2%, almost 90%. That's what a real stock market crash looks like. Um, but then the question is, well, when did it regain the 1929 high? When did it get back to the old high? The answer is 1954. It took 25 years to get back to that level. Now, it doesn't mean that you couldn't make money in the meantime. If you bought the low in 1932, it, it went up after that. But it did not get back to the, the 1929 level until 1954. 25 years later, a lot of people were dead. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't live that long. Um, I grew up in the in the 1950s and, and early 1960s. Uh, I did not live through the Great Depression, but my parents did and my grandparents did. And I was raised with a kind of a depression mentality. Now, the 50s and 60s were a very prosperous time in U.S. economic history. But we still, uh, you know, as a little kid, we would take the rubber band off the newspaper on the lawn in the morning and put it in a jar to save the rubber bands because why would you throw away a perfectly good rubber band? And my brothers and I would go out in the neighborhood with wagons and we'd go door to door and we'd collect tin cans and newspapers. And we weren't doing it for environmental reasons. Maybe it was good for the environment. We were doing it to recycle the tin because you could build ships or planes, et cetera. So, and that did not change until the late 1960s when the baby boom came of age and then we got, you know, credit cards and mortgages and home equity loans and started spending and consuming like crazy. It did change, but it took 30 years that the 1930s mentality was still with us in the 1950s and the 1960s. And that's the point that this pandemic is so bad. It's not something where things are going to get back to normal in a year or two. This will take decades. You know, a five-year-old girl going to school, you know, her mommy says, uh, you know, honey, put on your coat, put on your hat and put on your mask. And kids are adaptable. They'll put on the mask and go to school. But that's the kind of experience that stays with you your whole life. Mm -hmm. So monetary policy will not work 
because of velocity. That's the turnover of money. Fiscal policy will not work because we're past the 90% debt to GDP ratio. We're, we're well past it. We're up around 130% in the case of the United States. So they will print money. They will spend money. We will get higher deficits, but we will not get sustainable growth. Uh, I'm not saying we'll have, you know, a permanent recession, but we'll have growth of, you know, maybe once you get past base effects, maybe one to 2% uh, and an increasing debt to GDP ratio, which is more of a headwind of growth. So these policies will not work. We can hand out checks and people will spend them to some extent, but actual sa actually savings rates are, are going up quite a bit. So uh, some of it's being used for consumption, but not anywhere near all of it. Uh, U.S. Saving, savings rates have doubled. Uh, well, they, well, they tripled last spring and, and even the new level, they've, they've doubled from where they were for on average 10 years prior to that. So um, we're, we're seeing uh, increased savings. You know, if you're unemployed, of course you're going to save. You're not going to take your friends out to dinner. But the point is, even if you have your job, maybe your spouse is unemployed or your neighbor's unemployed or you're worried that you're going to get fired next week or your business is going to close next week. And so people save even if they have a job. It's what economists call precautionary savings or plain English, you know, saving for a rainy day. But the point is between, um, uh, you know, those who are unemployed and people who are worried about it, savings have skyrocketed. So even the money that gets handed out doesn't convert to consumption dollar for dollar. Some money does get converted to uh, consumption, but it's not sustainable. It's just, it's a one shot deal. What are you going to do? Do it again and again and again. That's, that, that, that can't be the case. So uh, we're in for a very difficult time. Mm -hmm. And now I would like to uh, go to the geopolitical level. Okay. Yes. How do you think um, the new Great Depression and the whole outlook, the economic and financial outlook that you've outlined for us, um, is going to affect the relations between the United States and uh, China? What will be the what will be the new element in the U.S. politics uh, towards Beijing? Uh, my call is that uh, Biden's administration will be actually looking for normalization of relations with Beijing in order to uh, focus more on the economic recovery at home. Uh, as you've also outlined it already, you know, spending more at home, making sure that uh, this uh, extremely negative effects are somehow tackled. Uh, however, this systemic decoupling, decoupling will be further ongoing. Uh, that means it's not uh, because I think also there was this wrong uh, idea that uh, it was only on the side of Trump and only, you know, taking place only on the side of Trump. But in fact, China is also interested in a sort of decoupling. Uh, so how do you think that this is going to affect also Chinese uh, policies? Um, what will be the role of the monetary issues? What will be the role of the U.S. Uh, dollar in all of this? Uh, you know, given that uh, the quantitative easing will be uh, ongoing, so there will be more trillions of uh, U.S. dollars, but also euros. So this whole euro, euro dollar system is going to be... Uh, Held in order to keep the system afloat, right? To keep the right. to prevent the system from crash, you know, <laughs> collapsing. But on the other side, China is also going to introduce measures to somehow decouple and uh, 
become more independent from the US-led uh, monetary and financial system, be it with uh, digitalization of the yuan, be it through increased presence and uh, participation in international and regional organizations. We saw what uh, they did with the uh, World Health Organization during right. the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, and we are seeing how they are now actively shaping international you know agenda uh being present uh, at the world economic forum giving speeches here and there so what is your take on that what is uh, what is your geopolitical outlook uh, based on all these uh, assessments for the right. economic financial and monetary systems right well i have to uh, uh approach the topic uh with humility valina you're, you're the number one china expert out there or one of them so i usually uh, follow your work but I, I do I do look at it very closely and I would make the following point um, the Biden administration is moving quickly to undo or reverse practically everything the Trump administration did so if it has Trump's name on it the Biden administration doesn't like it and they're undoing it uh, and they're doing it with executive orders for now but there'll soon be legislation coming on behind it however that is mostly in the realm of domestic policy or near uh, nearby foreign policy, I mean, Canada and Mexico. So they're doing things in um, uh, immigration, um, gun control, uh, uh, you know, Medicare, obviously domestic uh, spending, you know, the bills we talked about. Uh, they're, they're trying to undo, you know, the wall, et cetera. They're trying to undo every policy they can find. They are moving more slowly in international relations. I'm not saying there won't be changes. I expect there will be, but they're not doing them right away. The Democrats have their own problems with the Chinese. They're, they may be different issues than the United States. The, uh, Trump was fighting a trade war with China, and we had tariffs going back and forth. I think the, the Biden administration is much less concerned about tariffs, but, um, but they haven't reversed any. I mean, we, we've seen no executive orders and no action by Biden to uh, reduce or eliminate the tariffs on Chinese goods. Now, again, they, they may get there eventually, but they seem to be going very slowly uh, with regard to uh, China um, because the theft of intellectual property is a big deal. Uh, global supply chains have been disrupted. You, you do need to look more at domestic capacity. I don't think the United States, United States learned the hard way that um, we're completely vulnerable to the Chinese supply chain when it comes to medicines. Uh, you know, there's everyone saying, where are the masks? Where's the personal protective gear? Where are these um, these treatments? And, and the answer was they were all coming from China. Uh, and uh, that was uh, kind of a, a shock, I think, to a lot of politicians and a lot of, of Americans. So we'll be trying to kind of rebuild domestic capacity. And Biden hasn't said a lot about that, but that that's clearly the case. Have, having said that, uh, China, now China, for its part, is much more aggressive, much more confrontational. I'm sure you know they have the the Wolf Warrior diplomacy. Uh, Wolf Warrior was a very popular television series in China about some you know, action figure or whatever, but they've taken that term Wolf Warrior and applied it to a new class of diplomat who is much more aggressive, much more confrontational. The usual Chinese style, uh, Deng Xiaoping said, um, you, know, hi, you know, hide your intention, you know, um, you, you know just pursue your goals and hide your intentions, or that's not the, an exact quote, but that was sort of his model. And they did that for 30 years. Now they're not hiding their intentions anymore. They're confronting India and the Himalayas. They're confronting Taiwan and the Taiwan Strait. They're confronting the United States and the Philippines and the South China Sea. 
um, and elsewhere, and and you know, moving very aggressively internally with uh, uh, Xinjiang uh, province um, and some horrible things going on there that you know that are tantamount to genocide, and they don't seem to care about world opinion. So, uh, on the one hand, China's more aggressive. On the other hand, the Biden administration is taking a, a go slow approach, but uh, the the there are forces at work there that are much bigger than anything we just discussed. So if you ask from my expectation, I would say uh, uh, the Biden administration will try to undo some of the damage that Trump did. They'll try to, you know, sort of make amends and be friends and, but, you know, not necessarily upset everything. If you said where in international relations will Biden make more radical changes, I would say Iran. Uh, like they've already, they want to restart the Iran nuclear negotiations, uh, rejoin the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, Iran is on a path to have a nuclear weapon. Uh, Biden seems to be very anti-Israel. Susan Rice certainly, she's a domestic policy advisor, but she's anti-Israel. So uh, I, would, I would look at the Middle East and U.S. relations with Iran uh, as a uh, an example where there will be big changes from what Trump is doing. However, as you know. There's a strong connection between Iran and China. China doesn't have any energy, or they have coal, but you know the coal is, has its own problems, and there are limits there, and they import coal from Australia. But they want as much oil as they can, and they get it mainly from Iran, some to some extent from Saudi Arabia. So you might see a kind of a triangular trade where the U.S. eases sanctions on Iranian exports of oil to China in exchange for some Iranian cooperation on the nuclear portfolio, but the Iranians are pretty, uh, you know, cagey themselves. I, I, they'll probably get the better of the deal. I don't think Biden, the Biden administration is nearly as um, adept or, or adept or forward-leaning as the Trump administration when it comes to dealing with Iran. Having said all that, um, there are bigger forces at play, and they tend to be debt-related and demographic. Um, sorry, I just had a little... Uh, so... Uh, uh, and um, China is at an inflection point. China's growth is going to slow. Uh, China's uh, productivity is going to decline. And it's because of demographics. They have one of the most rapidly aging societies in the world. Not as bad as Japan, but not too far away. And the one-child policy, think about what that means. So you have four grandparents, so you know two couples, and they each have one child each. And then those two children marry, and they have one child so at a certain point in time, you have one grandchild supporting four grandparents. That's that's not sustainable. It's supposed to be the opposite. You know, you're supposed to have a lot of children, a lot of grandchildren, and you have a whole family network to support you in your old age. China, because of the one-child policy, which began in 1980, is going to end up upside down. They're going to have one grandchild per four grandparents at a time when life expectancy is increasing, uh, dependency is increasing, Dementia uh, and other debilitating diseases are increasing, uh, and yet you only have you have a smaller population, a shrinking population, entering the working force. So, if you think of um, people in the workforce as being productive, they produce more than they consume. And if you think of much older people as being the opposite, they consume more than they produce. Uh, China's growth is going to shrink. Uh, its debt burden is going to be unsustainable. Um, and it's going to move more to a consumption society, less of an export-driven society. These are major changes for Chinese growth and world growth. 
Uh, and I'm not sure if Xi Jinping appreciates it or not. I guess there's somebody in China who does. But they seem to be on a path where, on the one hand, they're more aggressive, uh, wolf warrior diplomacy, willing to confront all their neighbors, Japan, Taiwan, the United States, et cetera. Uh, and, and at the same time, their growth is going to slow, their exports are going to slow, their surpluses are going to shrink, um, and they're, they're going to have a, a serious uh, demographic uh, confrontation that will, uh, that will greatly reduce their productivity. So I, I have a very bearish case on the, uh, uh, on the Chinese economy, and uh, this is going to play out. What, what I'm talking about is going to play out over 10 or 20 years, but I already said that the after effects of the pandemic will play out over 30 years. So I see a world where uh, China's growth is slowing. Uh, they're much less productive, much less um, innovative, uh, and have serious debt problems, but at the same time, trying to pursue an aggressive foreign policy. So that's very likely to fail. Now, I'm seeing that we are approaching the 60 minutes limit, and I also know that you are, uh, you know, you're, you don't have much more time, so I will try to address some, some, some questions uh, from the chat room. I will wrap them up, uh, and I will only ask you to, you know, answer very shortly so that we can sure. address okay. all of them. So these are questions more or less related to the global monetary system, as you might guess. Um, and uh, one of them is uh, linked to uh, your expectations about deflation. Uh, so are we hitting uh, for deflation before, st uh, before stack of stagflation or inevitably inflation? So what is your take? Please really very shortly. Then there is a question on the CDR role. What is your adjusted assessment about the role of the CDR uh, system uh, being pushed by the IMF. Uh, also, what is your expectation about, uh, uh, or what is your assessment for gold in 2021? And maybe in a little bit middle-term scenario. Um, uh, also, um, given that uh, cryptos uh, have been uh, now witnessing uh, quite of a rise, uh, it's a, a second, uh, so to say, second moment for crypto, such as Bitcoin. As, uh, as the one that we observed a few years ago with uh, the skyrocketing uh, price of, I think, uh, around 20,000 US dollars for Bitcoin in December. I think it was in 2017, if I'm not wrong, or 2018. Uh, and now uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, is, uh, has been skyrocketing. So what is your assessment on that? So this, uh, are, this is my wrap up, I think, for or, uh, you know, to, to keep it as short as possible <laughs> for you. Good. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll try to be brief, but I got, so we got deflation, SDRs, gold, and crypto. Uh, my expectation is deflation in the short run, inflation in the long run. Everything I just talked about with China with regard to aging societies, lower productivity, um, you know, what's called the dependency ratio, where there are more dependents, relative to working uh, age population. That's true in China, but it's more true in Japan. And it's equally true in Europe and the United States. Uh, Spain, for example, has the, uh, the most rapidly aging uh, population in, uh, in Europe. Uh, so, so these factors are all true. So I expect deflation for now um, because of uh, 
because of economic shutdowns, high unemployment, recovery from the depression, uh, well, the continuation of the depression, recovery from, um, from what just happened with the pandemic. Uh, so deflation now, but in the longer run, meaning beginning in 2022 and certainly beyond that, you will have much higher inflation. Um, as far as SDRs are concerned, they're back. Uh, they, uh, they were last issued in 2009 and a little bit in 2011. It was a technical adjustment. But now the G7 wants a $500 billion equivalent issue of SDRs. Uh, but there's some talk of as much as $2 trillion. So think of it, it's the world money. Um, they don't call it that. They call it the special drawing right, but it's world money. Um, and the IMF has a printing press, the same as the ECB or the Fed. Uh, so they're cranking up the printing press. So we're going to see more and more world money, which would lead to a growth in SDR assets, maybe an SDR bond market. This will take years to play out. It's, it's not an overnight thing. That's certainly a move in the direction of world money. Uh, but it's also tends to be inflationary. You print money out of thin air, you'll get some inflation. Uh, gold, uh, extremely bullish on gold. I expect gold to go to uh, between ten dollars and $15,000 an ounce by 2025, if not sooner. So, um, and I always say gold doesn't change. It, it, when, when gold goes to $15,000 an ounce, it's not about gold, it's about the dollar. What you're looking at is an extreme devaluation of the dollar, and that's consistent with the inflation thesis that I talked about a minute ago. Crypto, uh, I think here you have to say, who's crypto? Uh, there are over 2,000 so-called cryptocurrencies. So I look at Bitcoin and Ether and uh, Ripple as, you know, it's a form of gambling. I prefer uh, roulette. You know, you can have a nice drink and enjoy the, the ambiance in the casino. But uh, they're not really good for anything. Uh, they don't uh, they won't be reserve currencies because there's no bond market. Uh, people think that the currencies are what make you um, a reserve currency. But that's not true. It's the bond market. When you say the People's Bank of China has one point four trillion dollars. Well, they don't have dollars stacked up on pallets in the basement of the People's Bank of China. They have U.S. Treasury securities, 1.4 trillion of U.S. Treasury securities. So they have dollar-denominated assets, but it's the assets that make you a reserve currency, a deep liquid bond market with primary dealers, auctions, payment systems, when issue trading, futures, options, hedging techniques, rule of law. You need a whole infrastructure that the U.S. has developed over 230 years. Um, to to support a reserve to support reserve currency status, Bitcoin has none of that, and nor will it because it's inherently deflationary. Who wants to borrow money in a deflationary currency? The answer is nobody. So um, so there's speculations. It's like gambling. If you enjoy it, that's fine. But I don't see them having a role in the international monetary system. But if you're talking about central bank digital currencies, uh, the CBDCs, that's different. Um, uh, China is very far along. Uh, Europe is uh, seriously considering it. The U.S. hasn't moved that quickly, but they're looking at it also. Um, but I would say the most successful cryptocurrency in the world is the U.S. dollar, because uh, the last time the Fed, uh, sorry, the last time the Treasury issued a paper Treasury note was 1980. Um, it's been 100% digital ledger ever since. Um, it's not blockchain, but it's a digital ledger with encrypted message traffic. So. What's the difference? Uh, so, uh, yeah, the, 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 the Fed may move to blockchain as a ledger, but it's still a dollar. It's still a euro. It's still a Japanese yen if it's in digital form. That has more to do with um, how you maintain the ledger, and it does have a lot to do with getting rid of cash. And that's a completely different issue. Uh, 
the developed economies have wanted to get rid of cash for a long time so they can impose negative interest rates, um, engage in surveillance uh, state techniques. If I, if I spent cash, you don't know I did it, but if everything's 100% digital, you know, your credit card and, and your debit card and your iPhone payment, uh, you know, waving or whatever it is, gives governments perfect information about your whereabouts and your spending habits at all times. So I view central bank digital currencies as a surveillance tool and a way to eliminate cash quite different from, uh, um, you know, private digital currencies, which are really, you know, kind of just gambling venues. Mm -hmm. And also if given that there will be a launch of uh, central banks, uh, uh, digital currencies, so just like China already did, and the ECB president Lagarde also announced uh, readiness on the side of the Europeans to launch a digital euro. Uh, I think that it's just a matter of time to witness uh, state regulations for uh, private crypto, so to say. <laughs> so this I, is I, I agree, I agree. The central banks will not let the private cryptos get that far. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see, do you still see uh, gold becoming a uh, reserve uh, reserve uh, currency, uh, given uh, it, that uh, China and Russia continued stockpiling actually gold, or is it just the hedge? Uh, I mean, give, next to being a money, uh, a kind of a hedge for investors. Yeah, it's um, look, gold is a uh, reserve. It's monetary reserve. It's a form of money. You're right about Russia and China. Uh, Russia is an interesting case. I always say. Uh, uh, Elvira Nabiulin is my favorite investment banker. She said, or sorry, my favorite central banker. She yeah. she seems to be the only one who knows what she's doing. Uh, but Russia got their gold reserves to twenty percent of total reserves. They got their gold. You know, gold is about twenty percent of Russian reserves. And then they stopped. They, they haven't bought any gold for about six months after ten years of buying. Well, why do they do that? Well, two reasons. One, twenty percent was my, my estimate is twenty percent was their target. That's a. I mean, China's about two percent. So um, so 20% is a very large percentage of total reserves to have in a single asset. But that percentage can go up without buying any more gold. All you have to do is wait for the price to go up. In other words, if, if, if dollars, if, in nominal dollars, if you have you know, euros or dollars and they don't, and they just, they don't change, and they have very low interest rates, and they don't change, but the dollar price of gold goes up, Gold as a percentage of reserves will increase without buying any more gold simply because of the price action. So she really knows what she's doing. Uh, but I think they'll sit tight for the time being and just let the price of gold take care of itself, which is a hedge against inflation. And we already said that we're, we're in for deflation in the short run, but probably almost certainly inflation in the intermediate to long run. So, so Russia is exactly where they want to be. Um, so you don't have to predict a gold standard. We could have a gold standard, but I don't necessarily see that. I, I think very few central bankers either understand it. They certainly don't want it. Uh, but that doesn't alter the fact that gold is a major monetary asset and is now a significant portion of the global reserves of a lot of uh, developed economies, including Germany, uh, Italy. Uh, I love Mario Draghi. Um, he's now, I guess, the new prime minister of Italy and before that head of the ECB. But he gave a, he was doing a Q&A at Harvard about five years ago, and uh, people forget that he, w he used to be the finance minister of Italy. Mm -hmm. Whatever it takes. About, yeah, that's right. And someone asked him about gold, and he said, I never sold an ounce of gold when I was finance minister of Italy, not one ounce, because I considered it a hedge against the declining dollar. So that, that tells you where he's coming from.
Yes, by the way, when we talk about the European powers uh, and the European states, uh, even middle, middle, you know, sized states, uh, there has been a tr clear trend in the last years of repatriation of uh, their gold. Yes, gold's coming home. Yeah, gold is coming home. And I have to address another question because I think it's uh, interesting for the audience. Very short answer on your side, please. There is a message, for instance, regarding India, that India uh, has been also milling on the CBDC. Um, and uh, the question is, uh, if gold is going down versus uh, Bitcoin climbing up, is there in your view uh, correlation are they linked uh, just like uh, let's take the us dollar and the euro yeah uh, correla uh, correlation and then there is a question um, about uh, whether uh, one should invest in physical gold uh, or rather in gold miners such as barrick well, uh, there's no important correlation between gold and bitcoin i mean if you the, the total market capitalization of bitcoin is trivial compared to the market capitalization of gold. So it's not, even if Bitcoin went up more and more people bought Bitcoin, that, that's, there's not enough capital in Bitcoin. And by the way, a lot of that market capitalization is just price increases. It doesn't mean that a trillion dollars went into Bitcoin. It just means that whatever amount is in Bitcoin is now worth a trillion dollars according to Bitcoin exchanges. It doesn't mean they actually have a trillion dollars, a trillion dollars went into it. Uh, but the point is that that number is still trivial relative to the size of gold. So it's not an important correlation. Uh, I know that story has been out there. Uh, India, of course, wants uh, digital currencies because they hate paper currency as it is. They were the ones who tore up. I forget what, what rupee denomination of a thousand rupees or some note about four or five years ago. They just canceled the notes and said you got to bring them in and get different currencies. So India hates paper money. And I'm not surprised that they want to see a digital currency for the same reason other countries do, which is uh, surveillance and um, and possible negative interest rates, confiscation, account freezes, basically control of the population. Uh, and uh, when you say Bitcoin's going up, gold's going down, I don't think Bitcoin's very important. Uh, gold is fluctuating. I was down yesterday or a couple of days ago, but again, the, the it's doubled in the last five years and the long-term trend is much higher. Mm -hmm. Okay, I suggest that we make an end at that point. Uh, we haven't addressed the chapter five, uh, which is, um, you know, uh, dealing with uh, uh, more or less uh, social repercussions of uh, the COVID-19 crisis. But we will probably need another hour just to, uh, you know, discuss all the issues uh, related to society, to, you know, to the devastating effects of uh, the pandemic. Um, the loss of trust and uh, the all um, other linked uh, phenomena that we are observing right now uh, in the West, uh, uh, and more more importantly, we haven't addressed uh, Chapter Six, which is actually dealing with the uh, investing advices right. uh, in a post-pandemic world. But let's keep it. Let's keep the suspense because uh, the audience should buy the book if yeah. they are interested in finding out what uh, would be um, logical uh, solutions uh, for a post-pandemic world, what could be uh, valuable strategies for investors. Uh, find out by buying the book. And uh, Jim, I really want to thank you for staying with me for more than uh, 70 minutes and uh, once again addressing all these issues. I suppose that we have to do another digital talk in less than a year to um, discuss uh, where we are 
right? No. Uh, Perfect. You, 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 you've been correct with so many calls uh, last time. Uh, and I suppose, uh, or I, let's say I'm afraid that <laughs> this time uh, you will be uh, certainly uh, correct once again by pointing to the uh, long-lasting uh, uh, economic uh, degrowth, so to say, or depressed growth that uh, developed economies uh, in the West are going to deal with. So thank you very much. Bye thank you, Brenda. Great to be with you. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.